Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. This week we're chatting to Emma Vizsich about her award-winning novel Resurrection Day. We discuss writing that difficult second book, her immersive approach to research, how she goes about developing plots with so many twists and turns, and how writing short stories can further your career. Um, Emma, it's so lovely to have you with us today. Um, Could we start by talking a little bit about Resurrection Bay for anyone who hasn't read it yet? Uh, Well, Resurrection Bay is a contemporary crime novel set in Melbourne, Australia, and also in a a fictional, somewhat fictional, coastal Victorian town here. Um, And it features Caleb Zellick, who is profoundly deaf, as well as being a a private investigator. And uh, the, the novel begins with him finding his best friend slain, basically, and and Caleb is uh, suspects that it's because he's involved his friend in an investigation. So he sets out to find uh, his friend's killers and um, gets himself into all sorts of trouble along the way. Yeah, it starts really, really punchy, doesn't it, right away, <laughs> getting right into the action. <laughs> yeah, actually, there's a funny story behind that, in that there was oh, about five chapters before that when I first started writing it. And I kept polishing them and I kept working on the writing and um, and one day I, I suddenly had this moment where I went, oh, I started the book in the wrong place. <laughs> and, and there was that horrible sinking feeling of now I have to delete 25,000 words. Oh, God. And then at the same time, an absolute relief that I'd worked out what was going wrong and I knew where the book was starting. But it's, yeah, one of those moments where you, you both want to vomit and cry. <laughs> Just a moment of complete clarity. That's good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although also anger that you have to get rid of that many words. But Oh, yes, yes. So, so your book is award-winning, which is, a, which is a complete understatement. It's won the 2016 Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction, three Davit Awards. Is it Davit Awards? Yes. Um, yes, run by Sisters in Crime here in okay. Australia. And also um, iBooks Australia Crime Novel of 2015. So firstly, congratulations. That's incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thanks. Can you let us in on how it feels to achieve such recognition for your first book? It's <laughs> um, really odd, actually. Really odd. Um, because I, I think you, you start writing not thinking that anyone is ever going to read a, a word that you write, and, and, and that's actually quite liberating in a funny way. Um, and, and yet you have to write this book assuming that someone will read it or else you're never going to finish it. So you have those funny dual thoughts going around in your head at the same time. And so I was pretty surprised that it got published. And then I was pretty surprised that anyone read it. <laughs> and then when it started reading awards, I just kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. And someone said, oh, really, don't be silly. <laughs> Let's take it all away. And so, so everyone loves yeah, it. Yeah, I was pretty pretty stunned, really. Well, congratulations. It must be yeah, amazing feeling. Yeah, uh, quite incredible, really, to to go from thinking this will never get published to, to having people like it. Yeah, it, it's it's yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. And and your next book in the same series. Um, and I wonder, writing that, did you feel any pressure to achieve a similar level of high success? <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> so yes, um, it's it's called and fire came down, and it's actually out here now in Australia. You have to wait a little bit longer in the UK, um, and people talk about 
um, the second the difficult second album with with pop yeah. singers and things, you know. And it's so true of second books anyway, because uh, I mean, you've taken your whole life to write the first one, really, in a funny sort of way. And then you've got a deadline, and and someone says, "Okay, do it all again." but make it different at the same time. And then, yeah, absolutely, the weight of expectations uh, uh, was huge. It, it took me, oh, I'd say, a good six months to, to shut out all the voices in my head so I could actually really get inside the novel. And it was such a relief when I started actually falling into the story when I was writing and, and getting back to that. I guess it's in the zone when you just in the world and in the characters' heads. And when I finally got to that stage, I was like, okay, now now I'm not writing people's expectations, now I'm writing the novel. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then it, it started flowing after that. So you, don't, so you don't think it necessarily gave you more confidence having won the awards? It kind of made you, like, be a bit like, oh, God, I need to make sure I do the same again. Yeah, so my biggest talent is being able to make anything positive into a negative. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, it, you have to be born with it, really. <laughs> Although your parents can probably kick it into you as well if you're really lucky. Um, yeah, so I, I found a huge pressure. Uh, but, I, I mean, I, I do sometimes when I'm having a moment make myself go, okay, people have liked what you've done before. Obviously, it's not totally terrible. And so I do do a little bit of, you know, affirmations. <laughs> with that write yourself positive messages on the mirror and stuff like that yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> so how, how many how many books are in the series there'll be at least three i've got a contract for another one that i've just started um after that i don't know it won't be a long series um but yeah a minimum of three okay cool exciting <laughs> mm, mm. it's really lovely to to know that there, there's another one it really changed the way I wrote and fire came down because I could see the arc, the emotional arc of the characters. Um, whereas I, I wrote Resurrection Bay hoping that it would be a series, but not knowing if it would be. So I, I, I yeah, it, I had to do both things at the same time. I had to make it enough of a full stop and also leave it open enough. So it, it was lovely with book two knowing that there was going to be book three. So I, I could um, really, yeah, carry carry the characters through. Yeah. So obviously Caleb is deaf. So um, mm. I, we wanted to know how come you chose this for him, and why you th why why do you think it is that thriller writers often choose to give their main characters some kind of impediment or weakness like this? So that's probably not the right word, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think um, flawed characters are the interesting ones. So whether it's inner demons or outer problems, but but with Caleb, um, I didn't actually intend to make him deaf. Um, it was. My my first drafts and my, my first ideas, I, I just put things down to begin with. And and it's only when I've, I've written quite a bit that I, I work out what I'm writing. And, and sometimes it's it's ages later when I work out why I'm writing it. And, and that's often when somebody comes up to me and says, oh, I recognise this character. And I say, oh, no, you don't. And then I, oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> You're right. I've written someone into a book without realising it. And, and that totally happened with Caleb I'd, I'd written quite a lot of the the first draft and um and I I really liked Caleb but his character wasn't quite there was something about him I didn't quite understand and then as I was reading through it I realized that I'd written into his character um a girl I'd gone to school with when I was about 10 who was profoundly deaf 
And ever since then, up until writing Resurrection Bay, I've been writing her into characters in different ways. I, you know, I, I wrote as a teenager, a girl who was mute, and, and when I was 11, the first thing I ever had published was a short story about a, a man who was blind. So it's just been this theme coming back and back, and she's just been, I guess, in my subconscious the, the entire time. So I, I wrote her into Caleb, and, and once I realised what I'd done, I thought, oh, that's a, that's a really interesting hook for a detective. I'm definitely not going to do that. <laughs> that's, that's way too hard and I'm, I'm far too scared to do that. So I put the manuscript away for about six months. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I just thought that it was, it was a terrifying idea. And, and my background is, is also in classical music. I'm, my, other, my other job is as a classical clarinetist. Oh, wow. And so all my life has been about sound and about nuances of sound and, and the, the idea of writing without sound, I, I, I just couldn't get my head around it at first. So, you know, the, the muse comes knocking on your door and you run in the other direction sometimes. <laughs> And when when did that sorry when did that moment like switch when did you think okay now this is actually what I have to do? Um, it, it was actually it was one of those moments. Sometimes things creep up on you. It, I, I did keep thinking about him over and over again. He kept popping into my brain. But it was actually I was in China visiting my sister, and I was having a lot of trouble making myself understood to someone because of the language barrier and. It really brought back memories of I studied in Holland um, in my early 20s and just that frustration of not really being good at a language and, and feeling frustrated at yourself and angry. And it brought back all those memories and I thought, oh, that's Caleb, that, that's that feeling of frustration of not having that communication. Uh, so when I got back home, I, I started writing, rewriting the book just to see how I felt about it. Uh, and, and it all just clicked into place, and I, and I loved it. And that's really when I started doing my research after that moment. Well, that's see, what we wanted to pick up on the research because we speak mm. to lots of writers about you know how in depth they go with their research. And for you, you actually learnt Australian sign language. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little obsessive. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, thorough. We like to think thorough. Is that is that something you did prior to starting the book, or did you start writing it no. and think I need to immerse myself more? Uh, no, it was as I was writing it. So I often do research uh, alongside writing. I, I don't tend to research and then write. Um, sometimes it's because I don't know what I'm going to be writing about until I do it, and, and but it's also because. I'm a, a little bit nervous sometimes of dumping information into writing and if you've done a lot of research before you start writing, there's often the urge to write it because you know things rather than putting it in because it needs to be in the novel. Mm. So it's it's a side-by-side -side process with me usually. So I, once I started realising, once I realised that I was going to write this novel, I thought, well, okay, I, I need to know what I'm talking about. Um, I'm very happy to use my imagination. You just, you know, as a writer, you just make stuff up. That's great. But there has to be a truth in it as well. Uh, um, I think it's not write what you know. It's know what you write. And so, well, first of all, I, I did an online course in lip reading. And I, I did a lot of things like uh, shopping and trying to catch public transport with, with earbuds in my ears and, and ordering coffees that come out terribly, you know, <laughs> terribly wrong in cafes and, and things like that. So, so I did a lot of um, research just to feel that um, yeah. 
that that slight distance with the world of not really being able to hear much. And and then the idea of using sign language was a gradual one. Um, most deaf people in Australia don't use sign language. Um, there, there's a really vibrant um, deaf community that do use sign language, but the majority of people don't use it. And most people who lip read really well don't use sign language. But I really like the idea of putting sign into a book. And I also thought that it might be a great way of showing a different side to Caleb, that if his life was difficult communicating with people, that the ability for him to sign with people would be a great way of showing him at ease in one area of his life. Um, and so, first of all, I just signed up to a short course of a, a few months and I just knew immediately um, that he had to do it. It's such a lovely language. It's, it's very creative. It's very emotional. And I thought, well, this is fantastic. It's going to show his more vulnerable side and also a, a fantastic way of showing his relationship with people. So he signs with people he loves and people who love him either sign or, or attempt to sign, like his partner, Frankie, uh, attempts um, sign language often to very strange results. But it's you can tell she's doing it because she's close to him and, and wants to bridge that, that gap. So once I, I did that short course, I then went and enrolled in a, in a certificate course and, and, and kept doing it, partly because... I wasn't quite sure that I knew enough to really portray it properly, but also because I just loved it so much. Yeah, and like what a lovely layer to put in there, you know? Like that's like a, a lovely way of showing your character in a different way. That's a n nice way of serious attention to detail. <laughs> yeah, well, look, it's, it was one of those things that it, it started off as a, oh, maybe I'll do it, and, and ended up being such a, a lovely through thing for me, but, but also for Caleb. I, I'm really happy that he has one area in his life that he finds easy. Did you, when you were kind of writing your first drafts and stuff like that and kind of feeding these elements in, did you speak to anyone or get anyone who was deaf to read, to read your chapters to make sure that it was kind of accurate and that it, felt it sort of was being communicated right? No, well, I did speak to a lot of people about their experiences. Um, so I, a lot of the people I was, I was learning sign language with were deaf either using hearing aids or not or cochlear implants. So I, I, I spoke to a lot of people in the deaf communities just to make sure that what I was thinking felt right. Mm -hmm. But I didn't get someone to check over the manuscript, uh, mainly because I didn't want – Caleb is Caleb, not a representative of the deaf community. Yeah. And I didn't want um, – I didn't want to be putting it out there that that was everyone's experience. So everyone's experience is very different. So, I, I, yeah, I didn't want to be copying anyone else's life experience. And in the end, I think it worked out well because I've had a lot of feedback from people saying, yes, that it, it's, it's right, it feels right, which is great. Um, but it's always a, it's a difficult decision always to whether you're going to get a sensitivity reader or not. Um, but I think in, in this case, just speaking to lots and lots of people before and, and in the process of writing it um, worked out really well because it meant that I got a, a really broad range of experiences rather than one person's uh, worldview. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so some of the parts of your book are pretty violent. 
Um, <laughs> so how did you how did you find writing these? Was it, what was that kind of like? Were you just instantly really good at it, or did you you know just, was it kind of something that took a little bit longer? And how did you kind of I, research it to make sure that it's accurate? If you know what I mean. I know. I suppose just movies and stuff. But what else would? Yes, um, I find fight scenes really hard to write because they end up just being descriptions. And then he put his left foot forward and he pulled his right fist back and yeah. the other man fell to the ground. And it ends up being, a, let's say, blow-by-blow blow description. Um, so they are really hard to write well. I think like love scenes as well, like sex scenes, um, very hard. When, when it's something physical, you end up – it's you start off when it sounds like a, it sounds like a textbook and then you have to make something of it. So, yeah, I had to work really hard on them. I find it very easy to imagine violence, which is a little bit of a worry. Um, but but I can, so I can imagine it. It's actually it's it's putting the words down in a way that I feel flows. But I've got to admit, I did actually a few times uh, grab my kids and make them act out certain bits so I could see if that were physically possible. That's what kids are for, though, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so as I was doing, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to be paying for therapy for a very long time. But um, it was great because I actually had little figurines that you know, would, would do it for me. So that was very handy. <laughs> and, and talking about um, keeping the flow going and, and that sort of, you know, that really fluid writing, in terms of creating a plot with so many twists and turns, did you find that it was a case of getting the plot clear in your mind before you start to write or do you feel that, did it sort of just reveal itself as you were going along and it felt natural to go this way and then that way? Mm, I so wish I had it clear in my head before I started. <laughs> it would save so much time. Uh, no, I, I usually start writing with a few scenes that, um, I don't know, have just bubbled to the surface of my mind. So with Resurrection Bay, I had what ended up being the first scene uh, I, I ended up also having the final scene, which was very handy, and then a couple more in between. Uh, so when Caleb goes back to his uh, ex-wife, um, and and then I had to just work out how to get from each scene. So they're like little road signs, I guess. I, I know I need to get to that road. I'm just not quite sure how to get there. So I often go down a lot of dead ends and, and very long and windy ways. But eventually I, I work out how they all link up and, and that's when I can really start working on the the writing, the right the pro side of it. Because uh, as I'm plotting, the characterization is an important part of it as well. So I don't do plot and then characterization. They have to come together because it really does need to be driven by the characters and their reactions to everything that's going on around them. Have you always written this kind of stuff? This, has this always been your kind of, your genre? I've always written everything. So I started writing about the same time I started reading. Um, and I've got little, um, you know, little science fiction stories and that from when I was in primary school and plays and, and things like that. Uh, I, I, I had a, a heavy Greek mythology phase there when I was about 12. Cool. <laughs> um, and then I, I, I did write an incredibly bad uh, John le Carre knockoff when I was about 13 or 14. <laughs> so uh, I think I, I've written all sorts of things. But there has there's always been a bit of crime along the way. The, the, the very first play I wrote when I was about, oh, I don't know, 10 or so, 
was a murder mystery called The Mystery of the Knitting Needles. So oh, wow. there's definitely been a bit of violence there. The Mystery of the Knitting Needles. <laughs> yeah, the Knitting Needles. They, they weren't stolen. It's, it's how they ended up in someone, you know. Ooh, and you wrote this someone. when you yeah. were 10 or 11, did you say? Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I like the sound of it. Maybe some of these need to be revived. <laughs> well, I don't think so. <laughs> Burn upon my death, I say. <laughs> That's amazing that you started writing as early. You must have quite the back catalogue of just excellence. <laughs> you know, it was funny. I I only started rereading any of my childhood writing last year, somebody asked me to write an article on my childhood writing and that's how I know I've had those stories about the, the, the various outsiders along the way and I was, re- I was reading through them going, oh, this is a really worrying little <laughs> expose of my psychology here. It's just, it's just like, seriously the, worrying. It's just the same for every writer, I think, isn't it? To an extent. It's just that, you know, every book is slightly exposing your psychology. Oh, totally, I, I think. And, and, and the funny thing is, is, you think as you go on that you get better at spotting what you're exposing and that maybe you're doing it on purpose. This is what I choose to reveal and then somebody will say something about a chapter or a scene and and link it with an event in your life that you've had no idea you've made that connection it, subconsciously, I guess, uh, but it's, it's very obvious to everyone who knows you who's reading it. And... Um- we understand that you wrote your final draft through the Woe Mentoring Project. Is that right? Yes, we're that's big, right. UK based. We're big fans of it. We've 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 had several of our riffraff authors. Frank Cooper was a Woe Mentoring um, Project author. Um, how did you get involved with it? Oh, so this was one of those things that just happened along the way via Twitter. I had been browbeaten by a friend into joining Twitter. I was not on the internet at all, apart from emails. Um, But I didn't know anyone in the writing business at all. I didn't know any writers or editors or anything. She said, look, if you're getting serious about writing, you really need to start connecting with people. And about a month after I joined Twitter, I think, I saw a tweet about uh, from Kerry Hudson that this was going to start up and he should register. And so once it opened, I I applied. It was just this beautiful um, timing because uh, I was I was just so ready for help and I was so ready for outside an outside eye. So the wonderful Jeanette Curry, writer and editor, accepted me and um, it was like a crush course, really, a, a crush writing course in 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 a few months from her, just teaching me how to see my writing from a distance and what questions I had to be asking myself when things didn't didn't work. Um, so it was wonderful. And I'm, I'm now a, a mentor through them as well because I found it such a, a fantastic experience. What did you have to submit to, um, to, en- to, to, to enter? Um, so you just have to, you have to write a letter, I guess, saying what you hope to get out of it and why you would like to be mentored and then a sample of your writing. So I submitted, I think it was just the first chapter of, of the novel. Um, and yes. And then the, the mentors choose, uh, who, who they'd like to work with and to my eternal gratitude, Jeanette chose me. Amazing. And did you did you apply to specifically have her as your mentor, or was it just kind of you applied to a program to the program? 
No, no, you apply to a specific people, and I chose Jeanette because um, she was a writer and an editor, and and I thought that would work really well. And, and I could also see that she'd uh, edited crime because you need someone who understands the genre you're working in, um, particularly when you're a novice writer, I think. If you, if you haven't written in that genre before and they haven't edited in it, I think it, it makes it a little bit trickier. Especially when it's so important that you tie up all the loose ends and stuff in crime. Like nothing can really be ambiguous, can it? You have to answer all the questions mm. and make sure that it's slick. So yes, and yeah. if, if there are dangling threads, it has to be on purpose, not just because you've forgotten to you know, <laughs> tuck that one into the scene. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, so would you, do you, you'd obviously recommend the, the project. How, how long was the mentoring period and how long did, you write, did it take to write your book? Um, so it probably went for it's different with everybody but it probably went for about six months um, in 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 going waves because Jeanette would give me feedback and then I would go away and work in, at things and um, and then show it to her um, and I think one of the, the biggest things I got out of it was the ability to ask the right questions. And I've still got her voice in my head. So Jeanette's Scottish and I'm Australian. Okay. So I've got this weird Scottish-Australian hybrid voice in my head saying, would you really do that? <laughs> that was cool. Um, you've talked um, also about getting your break through short stories. Is that something else, that another route that you would recommend? Oh, absolutely. I wish I'd done it earlier. I actually started writing short stories when I was about halfway through writing Resurrection Bay. Um, and I, I went to a writers' festival and there was three or four great writers talking. And at the end, when they asked, what advice would you give to emerging writers, every single one of them said, write short stories. For two reasons. One is that it can give you a bit of industry recognition so that when you're actually putting your manuscript out there, you can show hopefully that you've been shortlisted or won or placed in some awards. But um, also for a bigger reason, which is that they make you a better writer. So when you have a short story, you can hold it in your hands and you can see the entire thing uh, in your mind without jumping around. So you can see how many characters there are, you can see the plot, you can see the motivations, and you can very quickly see where you've got too much um, e excess, just wood, really, dead wood that needs to, to go. So the first short story I, I wrote made me realise that I had far too many characters in my book. So the, the character of Frankie in Resurrection Bay was originally three different characters in, in the very first draft. So oh, wow. by the time I got to the second draft, it was Frankie. And, and she was a totally new character. She, it, she wasn't an amalgam of the other three. It was just like, they're gone, here's the character, and it just all fell into place. And that was purely through writing short stories. And I think on a prose level it helps as well because particularly if you're entering competitions and things, you have a word limit. And if you've got 1,500 words and you can't go over them, it makes you look very carefully at every single word. And it's amazing how much excess there is when you first start doing this. Um, you think that you're, you've got this tight, honed passage and you suddenly think, oh, well, actually I could cut 10% of that just by getting rid of the adjectives. Yeah. And then when you really start looking at the writing, you, you realise you can probably cut another 20%. And then everything really is lean and mean rather than sprawling. 
Um, and, and also, I think short stories are great for your confidence too because I, I won some competitions through them and that was the first time I'd really put my writing out there and I thought, well, okay, um, someone at least thinks it's readable and, and that really helped me push on through the final drafts of Resurrection Day. Sounds like a real confidence boost as well. It's so much self-doubt involved in writing. It sounds, you know, to get that sort of feedback and, you know, it sounds like such a good way of just getting your confidence, you know, up and up to think, oh. yep, I can, I can do a book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the good thing is, is that if your short story doesn't go anywhere or do anything, you've, you've still had all the benefits of writing it and it hasn't taken you five years to write it. Yeah. Well, usually. <laughs> usually they're a bit quicker than that. <laughs> Um, so, so do you have any particular writing rituals? It's always nice to hear different authors' take on this. <laughs> um, no, not really. Um, the first thing I do is turn off the modem, um, so I can't, I can't surf the internet or anything. But I don't really have any rituals uh, apart from making sure that um, I'm in a room with a closed door where no one will talk to me. Although, having said that, I do actually often write in the living room on the couch but but only certain types of writing I, I can't be um doing really finessey writing it has to be just getting words down the page stage because it, it can be a bit distracting i don't write in cafes or anything like that um, i'm very much a by myself in my room sort of person any i wish i had some good rituals and any music or do you have do you like silence Absolute silence. Yeah, me Absolute too. Absolute silence. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually don't understand it when people listen to music. I know some people use it to get them in the mood, um, but be, because I'm a muso, I, I tune into the music too much um, yeah. and, it, and it, it really distracts me. But, yeah, I think you're an either-or, aren't you? Do you, do, you, do you like silence? I, I like silence, but I think I like background noise. If Unless I'm really ah. into it and then it's just flowing. Mm. Otherwise, I think I need a bit of socialisation around me. Yeah, yeah. So I know a couple of writers like that. Do you know um, Amy Kaufman, who, who co-writes Illuminate series? She, I think she broke her foot or something, so she couldn't go to cafes and write. And she missed it so much that she downloaded an app of cafes on her phone. <laughs> <laughs> so she could have the noise when she wrote. How is that? Wow. How, how someone's created yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I thought it's obviously a need. If someone has gone to the effort of creating an app, it's obviously something that people need. It drives me crazy, though. I just it's like, stop making noise. <laughs> that's like Olivia Sudjit. She has, she had like what a white noise machine that she said that oh. sent her kind of into this like frenzy of like creativity and I was like I need to get me I do do white noise if there's noise around me to cut out the noise yeah. but if it's silent yeah it's even better and how do you switch off again once you've had your whole writing session you've been in your room and in silence how do you click back out of it and back into sort of you know family life if I'm really lucky, I've had a day in my friend's studio. So a friend's got a studio near me and I borrowed a couple of days a week. Um, and that's lovely and quiet. And it's, it's literally an old convent. So it's, it's a nun cell. So it's very, oh. it's very simple and it's very quiet. It's these incredibly thick walls. Um, and if I've been there, I ride home on my bike. And that process of riding is great because it it, it's a great opportunity for me to mull over 
what I've done and often I come up with a great idea of some problem that I, I've had that day. So that's wonderful. But if I'm at home with the family around and everything, I, yeah, I just <laughs> just get on with it. Don't have much choice. Do something. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I drive I, someone somewhere. I yeah. find I have quite a lot of ideas on my bike. Yeah. Oh, the Isn't bike is the best thing. Yeah. I, I'm, really, I'm really struggling at the moment um, because I get all my best ideas on the bike, but I've actually got a broken leg at the moment, oh, so right. I can't ride it. Uh, it's been terrible for my writing. Oh, no. How did you do that? Acting I, was, <laughs> I, I should say that it was research. <laughs> I, was, I was bushwalking, actually. Oh, wow. And I slipped on a, on a really steep slope and, yeah, cracked my bone in two. Oh, Yeah, no. That sounds something <laughs> straight out of Resurrection Bay, I think. <laughs> I know. I really have to start saying it's uh, research, I think. <laughs> Oh, yes, I take these things to extreme. Sign language is nothing. Next time, <laughs> cracking my fibula. <laughs> it, was, it must be quite good for your writing, though, seeing as you can't really go anywhere or be distracted by much because you have to sit down a lot. Oh, have you heard of this thing called the internet? <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, yes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it, it's good for um, a certain type of writing, but it's really hard in generating ideas. Yeah. Because... You know, once once you're faced with that blank, well, not a blank page, I guess it's a blank computer screen, um, to come up with an idea when you're actually sitting at it is so hard. So it's good if I've got something to polish, but in generating uh, new new ideas, it's yeah, it's the pits. And is is that um is that are you are you working on book three now? Are you kind of like looking up for ideas for that, or have you already nailed that one? Oh, I wish. <laughs> no, I'm in the early stages of writing book three. Um, so it's just uh, I'm getting those those early scenes that I know are going to be in the book and in the finished book, um, and and just trying to work out where I'm going to go from from each of those. I I, I know where it's going to be set. I know quite a lot of the characters, so that's nice. But there's there's not a lot of words down on page yet. Well, then can you tell us a little bit about the plot of book two? So if I come down, uh, picks up. Uh, about seven months after the events of Resurrection Bay, and it's uh, it's in the middle of a heatwave, so that's late January in Australia, and uh, Caleb's really struggling after the events in Resurrection Bay, and no spoilers here, I'm not going to say what those events are, mm-hmm. uh, and, and one night he's, he's out for a run quite late at night, because running is the way he deals with his demons, and a young woman approaches him asking for his help, and she knows just a little bit of sign language, just enough for him to understand that she needs his help, but not enough to communicate properly. And before she can, he can work out who she is or why she's come to him, uh, they're attacked by a man and she runs into traffic and is killed. Wow. And uh, his only clue is that she has written his name and address on the back of a uh, train ticket to Resur- Resurrection Bay. Oh, it sounds Ooh, so yeah. good! I can't wait to read it. <laughs> You're clearly a master of the of like the very strong opening scene. <laughs> oh, I, I spent a lot of hours working on it. That's for sure, and a lot of deleted words. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much. That was so interesting and really lovely to speak to you. Lovely to speak to you too. Thanks so much. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com. Thank you.